The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Scorebox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore, and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. The S&P breaking 4,700 points for the first time, and the major indices closing at record highs as infrastructure stocks pop on the back of President Biden's big spending bill. Asian shares mixed despite a surge in SoftBank after the group yields to investor pressure and unveils a $9 billion stock buyback. Crypto's surge with heavyweights Bitcoin and Ether both hitting new all-time highs ahead of a major Bitcoin software upgrade next week. The Netherlands joins a COP26 commitment to end public financing of fossil fuel projects, but some motor giants hold out on signing a deal to end new car emissions by 2040, as former US President Barack Obama urges more action. Despite the progress that Paris represented, most countries have failed to meet the action plans that they set six years ago. And Euronext is cutting ties with the London Stock Exchange for its clearing operations and will clear all trades on its newly acquired Italian platform by 2024. A big response stateside to the passing of a U.S. infrastructure bill. And don't forget, uh, a day earlier, markets had been rallying on hopes that monetary policy would stay easy. Now the other piece of the pie around fiscal policy, very, very strong drivers for the market and enough to push up uh, the major indices to record levels yet again. The Dow, the S&P, Nasdaq all clocking up a fresh all-time highs, about the 44th record high that we've had for 2021 on the Dow. A big moving stocks so are clearly in the big infrastructure space. Uh, that's where you did see a little bit of action as well. Caterpillar, for instance, one of the big moving stocks for the Dow. But uh, as you can see, very strong levels at the index level, but percentage gains were a little bit slim. And I think at this point, there are still a lot of hawks out there concerned about the inflation story. And if you pour more stimulus into the system, what that means for areas of the market. And let's take a look elsewhere and you can see uh, how some of those big uh, US inflation infrastructure development uh, ETFs performed uh, this one in particular 1.3% bounce 36% high year to date so clearly a little bit of positioning ahead of this announcement. I want to take you to what we're seeing on some of the other major markets too and Bitcoin, Ether before we get to the Asian markets and this is how we are 60 8,152, that's a 3% pop. Ether also moving higher. This ahead of uh, software changes, but uh, it does seem to be also indicating a correlation again with the broader market. When you have stocks moving higher, you do have some momentum too in crypto markets. I want to take you to the Asia markets and how we're traveling there today. It's been a bit of a mixed picture across the various boards. The Japanese stock market trading down despite some movement in SoftBank, uh, this time uh, on the back of earnings, of course, uh, to the upside. We saw a 10% jump early on on a $9 billion buyback. So early trade that was positive, but uh, not exactly helping out the broader market at this stage. The Hong Kong and Chinese markets in the green, Australia tracking a little bit lower. 
Let me take you to that SoftBank picture, and this is how we are travelling. You can see that 10% gain, very strong, and narrowing the year-to-date range. The stock has been down double digits on concerns about the valuations of those big tech firms, and you can see still down 15%, but that 10% pop certainly helping the direction today. Jeff. Let's talk about the uh, Federal Reserve then. Thank you, Karen. Investors will get their latest insight into the health of the U.S. economy when the Department of Labor publishes producer price numbers for October, while the latest CPI reading will be published on Wednesday. It comes as the debate within the Fed ramps up around the timeline of a potential rate hike. The expectation is that we'll get about 8.6%, which I think is unchanged from the September reading. The Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida says the economy is still a ways away from a rate hike, but that he could support a rate hike by the end of 2022 if the US economy continues to improve as he expects. Meanwhile, the St. Louis Fed President Bank President uh, James Bullard uh, has reiterated his belief that the central bank will need to raise rates twice next year. Well, let's bring Julian Howard into the conversation. He's head of multi-asset solutions at GAM. Uh, Julian, good morning to you and thanks for joining us here. So obviously the next two days we'll see some important data from the US economy on the inflation side. What is your expectation as to how it will change either the Fed's attitude or investors' attitude to the Fed's reaction function? Well, first, on the inflation, um, if you look at the, certainly the last month or so, it is starting to slow. The, the kind of rate of ascent, if you like, is starting to slow down. Um, and I think that will reinforce the Fed's message, which is really to separate very, very firmly the tapering from actual rate rises. And this is something that Jay Powell has been at pains to do, um, certainly over the last few months. And in marked contrast to the Bank of England, which obviously that's a whole other subject, but the kind of communication confusion there. But the Fed has kept the two very separate. And I think rate rises probably not until well into 2022, probably the, the back half of 2022. And I think what they're trying to do is see if inflation actually eases off. And I think there's a chance that that will happen. And, and funnily enough, the, the jobs number on Friday gave me hope around that, because although there are, I think, half a million um, additions to that, it does suggest people are coming back into the labour market. And if people come back into the labour market, that should cool down wage hikes, uh, wage wage price rises. Um, and that in, that in itself is a major component of inflation. So I see an easing um, of inflation across the board. And I think that the Fed will have been proven right to keep stalling and stalling on rate rises because the data will eventually bail them out on this. Uh, and I think Jerome Powell has been extremely sensible on the matter. Yeah, very interesting your point on on labour. Is there not a possibility, as Carl Weinberg at High Frequency argues, that what we've got here is a shift in the structure of the labour market in the United States, that the this is the Amazon, Amazonification, if you like, of the economy, where people maybe who worked in diners are now getting a pay increase to go and work in um, fulfillment centres for Amazon or other tech businesses. And ultimately, they are seeing an increase in their salaries. And that has the potential to uh, to run inflation a little bit hotter. Well, th- there is anecdotal evidence that restaurants and sort of hospitality areas are starting to raise wages as well. Um, th- that, that's for sure. But I, I think there's a broader point that actually the, the 
the furlough scheme in America, or the, the CARES Act, if you like, which only expired um, in September, um, was a very sort of un-American part of American sort of economic history in the sense that it kept everybody at home. So there was this unique one-off period of reflection in which people, perhaps working in hospitality, perhaps worried about coronavirus, you know, felt that they could actually reflect and, and maybe move out of that area. But there's more confidence around inoculation, vaccination. I think Americans are getting more confident about getting back into contact areas of, of the economy. And combined with those rising wages and savings rates falling, people coming back into the labour market, I think you'll find hospitality will come back. And there is there is a benefit to it, you know, actually meeting people and dealing with people, which you wouldn't necessarily get as much in an Amazon fulfillment center or when you're just dropping off a package. So that, that interaction can be enriching. Obviously, customers can complain and be difficult for sure. And in America, service is extremely important. But, but I think those jobs will come back. People will come back into those over time. There's just been, as I say, a very sort of un-American period where people have been at home, being paid to be at home rather than actually getting out there to work. And, and the service sector is, is a very, very Im important place to sort of learn about, about customer service and efficiency yeah. and delivery on time. Why is it that people in your position seem to think that mystically something amazing is going to happen to the participation rate in the United States, that it's going to reverse over 20 years uh, of declining participation rate? It's almost as if we see this 61 figure now and we think it's going to miraculously get up to 65, miraculously get up to 70 as well. I mean, we're talking at most a percentage point, maybe a one and a half percentage points back to where we were for most of the last decade, if indeed there is a vast amount amount of people rushing back uh, into the workforce. We seem to forget some of the demographics at times, I fear, Julian. Yeah, there's there's definitely a demographic demographic challenge. I think that's a, almost a separate issue. I'm really trying to focus on you know, what has been pushing wages up just over the last 18 months. And I think that will be reversed. But yes, beyond that, you know, beyond the immediate COVID recovery, the US has a demographic issue. Part of the solution, of course, would be immigration, which traditionally has always been you know, part of the solution for, for, for the US workforce. Um, it's politically less, in, has politically been less in favor. So we will have to see as the pandemic subsides, whether that can come back, because that's obviously a quick fix. One of the quickest fixes for, for demographics and, and an aging workforce is to get young, um, hungry to work people into the economy very, very quickly. It's far quicker than obviously improving the fertility rate. Um, but I, I just don't see whether in the States or internationally much uh, appetite for that. OK, so just, just to confirm, you and you're as you've been around long, but well, not as long as I have, but you've been around long, long time. Do you think a negative five percent real interest rate in the United States is appropriate? Well, I think low, certainly low rates. Um, and I think that the, the Fed can see through a negative real rate for a time. But as I say, the inflation should ease off. So it shouldn't necessarily be a, a negative rate for an extended period. But as as, as uh, inflation eases off uh, and then rates will have to stay low for a long period, because even after we get through the pandemic, we have all of these growth headwinds. You mentioned one of them, which is demographics. We've also got inequality. Uh, and of course, we've got climate change, you know, all of which are extremely negative for growth over time. So it's very hard to see, um, sort of, if you look two years plus out, um, how central banks will ever be able to sustain very, very high interest rates. But it needn't mean there's a, a negative real rate um, if inflation eases as well.
Gillian, uh, some good points. And I think when it comes to wages, a lot of employers are reluctant to get into that spiral of steadily increasing costs uh, and fixing those costs. I know Macy's was going for what college tuition to try and win over workers as well. That's a slightly different angle on the story. But I want to ask you about what we're seeing from the Fed. And there was a warning buried in the commentary around the semi-annual testimony yesterday. And effectively, there was a concern about the worsening of the health situation in the United States as a potential risk, but also a reversal in sentiment which could bring fairly sharp declines in asset prices. Does that suggest at this point, given we've got record levels on the major indices, that investors should be considering some form of protection? Yeah, I think capital preservation should always be something that investors have in, in, in their minds. Surely, you know, if you're 100% equity invested, you're, you have the time horizon, you're prepared for the volatility. But, but most clients, certainly most of our clients, are in balance-type accounts, uh, and we take a great deal of care to put together a capital preservation sleeve, which tries to smooth out the volatility. And I think, yes, a health, a renewal of the health crisis could be one of the things that actually drags the market down. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I, I am encouraged, though, by the, the Pfizer pill and what that may do for markets. And I think that's part of what's been going on. Uh, you mentioned the passing of the infrastructure bill. That's certainly part of it, too. But the Pfizer pill may actually permanently mitigate that, that health risk. Um, from now on, because it's not just a, a psychological exit from COVID, but actually a definitive medical exit, potentially. You know, it actually will almost cure it. Um, so I think that risk goes. But there are, of, of course, you know, other other issues out there. And I think a policy error is one which could actually see the markets get very upset very, very quickly. You know, high asset prices today are predicated on, on the idea of, of low rates forever, which which is our base case. But there's plenty of room for policy error along the way. And we, we've seen the miscommunication from the Bank of England. I think the Fed are being very good about this. But as a central banker, you, you kind of look at the amount of QE, look at low rates, and you, you want to fix it. Your, your instinct is to normalize that. And that's very powerful. And it means you sometimes conflate you know, the su supply inflation, supply-driven inflation versus demand inflation. You use the, the blunt tool of interest rates to deal with an inflation that's actually caused by these very unique circumstances. Uh, and that would be an error. And, and I think that, that error, that potential for error, certainly exists over the, at least, you know, the duration of the recovery from the pandemic, which could be another 12 months. Julian, there is a healthy debate going on at the moment between the hawks and the doves about what type of inflation shock we're looking at this point and the catalyst behind some of the price escalation. Don't you think the Fed is paying enough attention to that? And, you know, there's been so many missteps in the past around taper and taper tantrums. Surely it's learned its lesson by now. Well, yeah, as I say, I think the Fed, the Fed is doing it very, very well. The communication is extremely clear. There's been a great separation between tapering and interest rates. I mean, I think it's fantastic that the conversation coalesces around tapering, the speed of it, and obviously it's, it's a, it was officially announced last week, so it has begun. Um, and that means that the conversation around in, outright interest rates can be delayed, because I just don't think it's appropriate to raise interest rates when we're still coming out of this pandemic, when the price rises that we are seeing are a unique function of exit from, from the pandemic. So I think the Fed is the, the shining example um, and I just wish that other central banks would would be you know, similarly cautious about raising interest rates rather than kind of openly discussing, you know, how strong the economy is growing and how strong inflation is and, oh, shouldn't we do something about it? Because I think that, that way policy error and investor confusion lies. Just let me confirm something you said there, because it's actually quite stark and, and you've, you've gone into 
I, I think what the herd thinks now is low interest rates forever is what you just said. I think we th- are going to have low interest rates forever, what you just said. So just to confirm, you believe that centuries of economic cycles are over? Well, actually, um, if you look at yields since the 14th century, there's a really good study by the Bank of England by Paul Schmelzing, um, who's now at Harvard. But he did a study of yields from the 14th century, and they've actually been falling ever since Plantagenet times. So this is really actually a return to a very, very long-term trend of, of yields falling um, over an extended period of time. So it, it's not like it's the end of the cycle, so to speak. The cycles were always a, a very small component of a very strong overall downward trajectory. So I think it's entirely consistent historically to talk about low rates forever. And of course, today we know exactly what's causing it. You know, we mentioned already you know, demographics, inequality, climate change. I mean, if you look at Swiss Re's um, estimates for economic damage from climate change, you know, if we miss the, the Paris target, which we're basically going to miss the Paris target, I, I can't see how that is going to be adhered to. You know, the, the damage is in the order of, of the, the global financial crisis and, and the pandemic. Um, and that, that's going to have a very, very negative effect on interest rates. There's, there's no context in which a central bank will be able to normalize, sort of 1990-style normalize um, interest rates when there's going to be absolutely no growth. All right, Julian, that's excellent. And apologies, I've berated the team. They didn't have a chart that went back to Plantagenet Kings as well. Um, I did hope they could find the 1189 uh, Richard I <laughs> quote on the economy, but they, 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 they screwed up. So, Julian, excellent work as ever. Thank you very much indeed for that. Julian Thanks. Howard, uh, Head of Multi-Asset Solutions over at GAN. How dare he bring up Plantagenet economics on me? I didn't know that one was coming. I fell into that trap. There's not enough money to pay for a licensing fee that stretches back that many years. I think we have about 10 years on the, on the data points. Well, but isn't it extraordinary that, that real rates have been going down since Plantagenet times, according to Julian? That is a great, you don't get that stat anywhere else. Okay, right. Um, I mean, Jeff will remember, of course, Plantagenet kings. Um, moving on. Uh, ahead on score. <laughs> ahead on score, we'll discuss earnings and consolidation in the luxury sector with the Watchers of Switzerland CEO, Brian Duffy, actually. Uh, we'll also digest third quarter results from Munich Re with Christoph Jureka, the CFO, and Wienerberger CEO, Heimo Scheuch, will tell us how the world's brick, biggest brickmaker is faring. Coming up on the show, Geely launches arrival to the Tesla Semi and says it's targeting the international market, including the US, and will be live in Shanghai when we return. And for more on the Fed rate debate and for all the business news you need, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
The Netherlands has pledged to stop providing public finance to new fossil fuel projects overseas by the end of 2022. The country joins a group of 20 others, including the US and Canada, but the commitment has not been supported by Asian countries. Former US President Barack Obama has called on young people to get out and vote like your life depends on it, as he addressed attendees at the COP26 in Glasgow. Obama urged young people to stay angry in their quest to address climate change, but to channel their frustration. The former president also hit out at inaction from Russia and China. Most nations have failed to be as ambitious as they need to be. The escalation, the ratcheting up of ambition that we anticipated in Paris six years ago has not been uniformly realized. I have to confess, it was particularly discouraging to see the leaders of two of the world's largest emitters, China and Russia, decline to even attend the proceedings. And their national plans so far reflect what appears to be a dangerous lack of urgency, a willingness to maintain the status quo. China's central bank is making a new push to encourage green loans. The People's Bank of China will offer a lower rate of 1.75% to banks lending to companies contributing to the country's carbon emission goals. The central bank will provide up to 60% of the loan balance via a new online tool. Uh, a global deal to end new car emissions is less than 20 years uh, in less than 20 years is lacking support from some of the biggest names in the business. The US, China and Germany are all expected to be absent uh, from the deal, which is putting automakers off uh, just days before it's unveiled at COP26. VW and BMW have said they will not sign up to the 2040 pact, and Toyota is reportedly extremely unlikely. BMW cited a lack of necessary infrastructure to support a global shift to zero emissions vehicles. Jeffrey. Tesla shares uh, plunging 5% on Monday, another 1% in extended trade. It came after a weekend Twitter poll by the CEO Elon Musk in which followers urged him to sell 10% of his holdings in the company. Musk said he would abide by the result, but had already said he could sell a, quote, a huge block of Tesla stock in the fourth quarter. I know there's a little bit of speculation here. This may upset the SEC. So we'll have to see where this story goes next. While we're in the uh, vehicle space, let's sp uh, spend a bit of time on uh, Geely. So China's Geely has launched an electric semi-truck. The Hom truck, which is targeting the international market, could become a direct competitor to Tesla's Semi, which was first announced in 2017. Geely's offering being released under the company's commercial vehicle arm, Farazan Auto, will roll out in 2024. Arjun is in Shanghai and can tell us a little bit more about the com competition in this space. Good morning, Arjun. Good morning, Jeff. Certainly China, of course, a huge market for these semi-trucks. Geely hoping to capture a share of that. It's an interesting vehicle because it's not just electric. It can also run on uh, methanol batteries, which is something uh, that Geely has been developing as well. So it's one of these new energy vehicles, production and rollout looking for 2024. And Mike Fan, the CEO of the commercial vehicle group, telling me uh, that he will also be launching this into international markets as well. But as Geely does push further into electric vehicles, 
vehicles and new energy vehicles, it is facing some challenges. The first one, of course, the rising costs at the moment of raw materials. Lithium sitting at record highs, which is pushing battery prices up. And the second, of course, is that continued supply chain issues around chips, the chip shortage that is hitting many automakers across the world. I had a chance to catch up with Mike Fan and asked him first a little bit about how the high lithium prices are impacting his business. Let's listen in to what he had to say. Geely has a clear strategic plan on autonomous driving. Geely also has a clear business layout on autonomous driving, from R&D to actually business. We develop autonomous driving technologies for commercial vehicles with technologies shared by Volvo and eCarX. Our plan of autonomous driving has three phases. Phase one is by 2023. We are to achieve L3 autonomous driving. Phase 2 is by 2026, linking together all technological resources, software, hardware and computing capacities to achieve L4 autonomous driving on highways. Our plan is, and we are trying to achieve L5 autonomous driving by 2023. I'm sure regulations and standards of autonomous driving are in the process of formation on the basis of market demand and the development demand of our own company. Geely, as a company, should develop and improve certain technologies ahead of time, so that when regulations and conditions are ready, we can apply our technology into the market in time. Do you think the, the, the regulation and the infrastructure will be in place by 2030 for you to achieve this? Based on our research and analysis on market and our customers, I think China's autonomous driving needs to be developed in phases. I mentioned that Geely is trying to achieve L3 autonomous driving by 2023. This is actually restricted to certain scenarios, for instance, ports, mining fields, industrial parks. So it's a conditional autonomous driving application in certain scenarios. This is a replacement of humans in certain fixed logistics scenarios, but it is largely different from logistics on highways. Autonomous driving in certain scenarios and on highways are different in terms of their essence, regulations, and technologies. I think China's autonomous driving will be achieved in different phases for different scenarios and functions. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.